For the people who say, I need a bigger study, I don't know how to help you. Where, where am I going to get a bigger study? We're going to have to enroll Martians soon. We're running out of people. Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari. You can see it. I mean, it's crystal clear. I think it's going to really revolutionize things. Goes, which is a big game changer. All information discussed or provided by Jonathan Bakhtari, MD, Dr. Bakhtari, and or his affiliates and guests are for educational purposes only. The information discussed and provided is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical concern or condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of any information discussed or provided by Dr. Bakhtari or his affiliates and guests. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call 911 immediately. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Bakhtari MD. So this is our second season and we have a lot of amazing content to go through. And today I want to really start off with the FDA approval of the Pfizer uh, COVID-19 vaccine, the final approval. If you do have any questions or concerns about that, please leave it in the comment below. I'll try to address as many comments as I can. You know, the first thing I really want to talk about is there's a lot of information about the COVID-19 virus, the pandemic, and even on YouTube and other social media, I see a lot of you know, medical professionals who are now COVID experts, and I, I respect that. But something I find interesting is some of these people giving us the information were not virus experts and COVID experts and immunologists and virologists and, and had a background in, in, in vir viral medicine or vaccines in general. And now all of a sudden they're COVID-19 experts. They were family doctors two years ago. Now they're COVID-19 experts. And not, not to put any of that down, but some of the information I see coming out from these people just doesn't jive or is consistent with what the science shows. And I think we, we need to really pause and be careful where we're getting our information. You know, for all these people who are COVID-19 experts right now, where were they two years ago? What were they doing? right? Were they doing adult vaccine medicine? W were they involved in, in vaccines before this? And I think that will tell you a lot because I'm a little befuddled by some of the interesting misinformation I see. And, you know, um, I've been a medical director for E7 Health for over 11 years now. And all we have done for the past 11 years is we did adult vaccine medicine. We don't do primary care. We don't do urgent care. This is what we do. And so when we look at data and information about this pandemic and or the virus or the vaccines, you know, we look at it critically and we look at what the science says, not what we want the science to say, not what we'd like the science to be, but where the science is actually. So I really want you to take what we say seriously and believe that, you know, we were doing this stuff before the pandemic. And so we're able to incorporate and follow the science and, and communicate that information to you. So let's talk about what this approval means. The approval means that the Pfizer vaccine will no longer be under emergency use authorization. Pfizer had to submit new data on over 40,000 participants in the study that they followed for six months. Uh, the amount of paperwork was quadruple what they had originally admitted to the FDA 
for the emergency use authorization. So a lot more data came into play now looking for efficacy over a much longer stretch. So that was really part of the reason the FDA went ahead and gave the full approval. Uh, the other thing, and the FDA admitted this, is they also looked at the real world data and not just the 40,000 plus cases that Pfizer presented. And that real world data is 92 million people have gotten the Pfizer vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine in the United States. And so not only do we have the data on the 40,000 plus, we also have the data on the 92 million people. And the FDA uh, said that they analyzed uh, the real world data in conjunction with the people in the study. So if you want to call it sort of like study A, which was what Pfizer gave them, and then we'll call study B the 92 million people that were in the real world study. So that kind of makes it interesting because if you were to combine the 92 million with the 40,000 plus people in this trial, that would make it 92 million plus <laughs> 40,000. That would make it the largest, largest ever clinical trial before, be, before any drug or vaccine has ever been approved in the United States. There has never been a clinical trial with 92 million people before FDA approval. So this is a little ironic because on one hand, you know, the blowback we get is from a lot of people who have concerns uh, about the Pfizer vaccine or mRNA vaccines in general is it hasn't been studied enough. And given all this, it's actually been the most studied vaccine in the history of mankind prior to FDA approval. So depending on what your confidence level is on the 40,000, it can only be multiplied you know, exponentially by looking at the 92 million people. So we now have a great idea what the side effect profile is, what the efficacy is during the first six months since um, it got emergency use authorization. And that information should be integrated in our view of how safe or uh, how e efficacious the, the uh, Pfizer vaccine is. Okay, so now I want to talk about how this FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine, addresses vaccine hesitancy. So let's separate the people who have vaccine hesitancy into different categories. The first group is the one that's probably the most simple one that simply needed FDA approval because they didn't want to take anything that had emergency use authorization. So for those people who simply said, give me the full FDA approval and I'm all in, they're good to go. They're going to run out tomorrow. In fact, there was on TV, on the news, there were some people literally who as soon as it was approved, went right to the pharmacy and got their COVID-19 vaccine. So they're good to go. They're addressed. The next group is the group that says the study, the you know 30 some odd thousand originally used for the emergency youth authorization study was not a big enough group. I think I addressed that earlier, which is, yes, that's true. But again, if you combine the 92 million plus the 40,000, I think you it's a thin argument anymore to say the study group was not large enough. I don't know how we could make it larger. I mean, 92 million, not enough? Well, actually, it's really a bit more than 92 because the Pfizer vaccine was used globally on hundreds of millions more. So we could add them. We could add the mRNA vaccine from Moderna and pool the data. And then, you know, it would be hundreds and hundreds of millions. So for the people who say, I need a bigger study, I don't know how to help you. 
Where, where am I going to get a bigger study? We're going to have to enroll Martians soon. We're running out of people. I'm joking. But yes, obviously, we have a lot more people to vaccinate. But you get the point. You can The people who say this study this is not large enough, I can't help you. I just can't. I cannot enroll more people if you include the people that have taken the vaccine under emergency youth authorization as a group and add it to the study group. So if you're going to tell me the study group's not large enough, I, I, I don't know what to say. Because that's what a study is. A study is, let's give it to umpteen people simultaneously and follow those umpteen people really carefully. No one does a study like, you know, where they give a chemotherapy drug to one patient and a year later they give it to another patient. The power, the power, that gives it more power. If you look at statistics, the, the N has more value. In other words, the more N you have, the more people simultaneously getting it and you can go to an endpoint and observe the impact, that gives it more power in the sense that we, we it makes it less likely we miss something. For example, like a lot of the orphan drugs that there aren't enough people to take them, a lot of times we never find out the major horrible side effects because we don't. the case number of people that got it aren't enough. So because we're only, you know, let's say there's an orphan disease that only you know, a thousand people in the U.S. get every year and we come up with a new therapy for it. Even if we gave it to all thousand, that it wouldn't be enough. So that's a, that's a story that cuts both ways. It, it cuts both ways in the sense that if we didn't give it to enough people, we really wouldn't, we couldn't be confident that we're not missing something. So the fact that we gave it to everybody simultaneously allows us to believe that we've probably caught most of the side effects that are going to occur. I'm open to suggestions. Leave a comment. Tell me where I'm missing the boat on this. Maybe I'm missing something. Someone please explain it to me. Let's talk about the group. I want to say we don't know the long-term side effects. Great. I hear that. Well, it's interesting because this vaccine disintegrates in your body, if you want to call it a vaccine that is a, is a little more novel, but it still disintegrates after about 48 hours in your system. So it's not like a medication you're going to be taking daily for weeks or months or years that you want to know the long-term side effects. It basically goes away after a few days. Now you can say, well, the remnants of its impact, I'd like to know the long-term side effects. And I get that. And I hear that. And I can't totally dismiss that. I can only use logic. One thing we know about vaccine medicines, vaccines have been around for a long time. So one thing we know about vaccines in general is they tend to have short-term and moderately short-term side effects when they do have side effects, right? So if you're going to have, get a side effect to a flu shot or you're going to get a side effect to a tetanus shot, the vast, vast majority get it either immediately or shortly thereafter. There are few, if any, cases of long-term side effects from the current crop of vaccines we've had up until now. Is it possible that the mRNA technology will produce long-term side effects? Two, three, four, five years? Will you grow ahead, an extra head five years from now? It's possible. It may happen. But everything we know about vaccines up until now argues against it, simply because most vaccines have side effects 
pretty immediate or thereafter. But long-term side effects are rare from vaccines. Now, could this become the exception? Yes, I guess it could be the exception. I guess what makes me think it's not going to be the exception is what are we really putting in this vaccine? There are no real drugs. You know, there's no toxins. What we're really doing is giving you a small, small piece of genetic code, which you're probably going to meet anyway if you get the virus, which you will if you don't get the vaccine. And that genetic code is all you're going to be introduced to, but you're going to be introduced to that anyway. So my argument is if you're going to get long-term side effects of getting a certain small percentage of the genetic material of the virus, then you should get even more side effects when you get the full genetic sequence of the virus, which you will get if you don't get the vaccine. So I don't know what to say beyond that. But again, maybe I'm missing something please leave a comment. I would love to address your concerns. I think that the people that make the argument that this is a new technology, I have a couple of different feelings about that. Uh, First of all, again, it is a technology where you're going to get to meet a little portion of the genetic material. So if you don't like that, or you think that's going to have long-term side effects, I would just say, what about meeting the whole genetic material? Uh, and if and if it's a binary decision of meeting a small percentage versus the whole thing, whatever concerns you have about the small thing, you should have about the big thing. In terms of the fact that it's novel, I get that. and I, And that's probably the only thing that I would really not be able to push back strongly other than to say there are other vaccines that use vectors to deliver genetic material that we've studied for years and years in the past. In fact, the AstraZeneca and the Johnson Johnson are more traditional ways where we use a cold, a cold vaccine, an adenovirus from, from a chimpanzee, for example, to put the genetic material and, and, and give it to you and you get infected that way using a, a virus that's not toxic and can't replicate. So passing on genetic material to as a as a way of inducing an immune response we've done this before what's novel about this is we're not using another virus to infect you with it we're just giving you an envelope which is a fake virus i mean the mrna technology from pfizer and moderna just use a fake soap bubble okay so do you want the dna in a soap bubble or do you want the dna in a cold virus from a chimpanzee i think i'd rather have my you know rna in a soap bubble which was really with the, what the envelope that Pfizer and Moderna are using. So I would rather have the soap bubble. Why would I want like a whole other virus, which is what, again, what is the AstraZeneca is and what the Johnson & Johnson, they're giving you a whole new virus. Now, there's nothing, I'm, I'm comfortable with that virus because it can't replicate. That technology of giving you genetic material is old. What's new about this te- technology is that we're not u- using another virus to infect you with that genetic material. We're just giving you a soap bubble. It's a lipid particle. (laughs) A lipid particle is a soap bubble. It's just soap. Okay. I mean, in layman's term. So I think the argument that is, you know, new technology, but let me go one other place with this, which is sometimes, you know, a new type of ulcer medication comes out. Like, you know, for a long time, we use H2 blockers to treat ulcers and then proton pump blockers came out and they may have long-term side effects. But the point is at a certain point, you have to look at the cost benefit analysis. And 
yes, new technologies, there's new ways to do arthroscopic surgery on your knee. There's new ways, new ulcer medications, new migraine medications. They roll out every year. This idea that until we know the 10-year side effect profile of every ulcer medication or every migraine medication, no one should take it. I don't know if that's the right way to go. I think the reality is if on balance, if it's saving lives what level of risk can we live with? Because this really gets to one of the topics I want to talk about, but it's a nice segue, which leads to the people, the group of people that say, I don't want to take a COVID vaccine until there's no risk, until someone's proved to me for that within 10 years, nothing will ever happen to me and I don't want any risk at all. I, I don't care if it saves lives or not. I'm not taking it till I, someone proves to me that there's no risk. Okay, great. Then do me a favor. Never walk into a doctor's office, never have an elective medical procedure, never take a Tylenol, never take a Motrin, never do one of them, because all of those have some inherent risk. We've all seen the commercial for a new ulcer medication on TV, and 90% of them, I'm exaggerating, of the, 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 the speaker's voice is about the side effects. And if you listen to those, who would ever take any of those medications, right? I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, it just sounds horrible what could happen to you. But I think when it comes to other drugs like ulcer medications, migraine medications, people understand that there's a certain small potential for side effects, but on balance, on balance, the benefit to the vast majority, okay, outweighs the risk. And sometimes that risk profile changes. And over time, there have been drugs that have been pulled off the market by the FDA because it evolved and and nobody goes back and says, well, oh my gosh, you know, we should have not done that. Maybe on balance, what we try to do in medicine is we say, are we saving more lives? And is that worth the risk that we're taking? And sometimes it's not, and sometimes it is. But for the people who want no potential side effects before they take this COVID-19 vaccine, I don't know what to tell you. Because if you find me a medication or procedure that fits the bill. And why are we applying that bar to COVID-19 vaccine that we're not applying to anything else? It's interesting, right? I mean, why would we have that bar until I know with metaphysical certitude that there is no side effects to this vaccine, I'm not taking it. What, that's a different bar than we apply to, you know, when our doctor gives us a, an antibiotic for a sinus infection. We, we don't use the same standard. Right, and we, we don't say, "Hey, doc, I'm not taking this medicine for my sinus infection," until you prove to me with metaphysical certitude that there's no chance that I could have a side effect. Okay, so a lot of people um, tell me, you know, they're hesitant to get the va uh, the vaccine because they heard recently that it may not prevent them from actually catching the virus or carrying the virus or infecting others. And to that, I would just simply say, first, we've got to compartmentalize. Are we talking about, you know, the original strain or the Delta strain? So we're not mixing, you know, apples and oranges. When it comes to the original strain, I think we all agree, you know, the 90, 95% efficacy with mRNA vaccines that you're not going to get the disease. And it's semantics, whether you got exposed and your body handled it. So does that mean you got it? you got it or didn't get it. Bottom line, you don't become symptomatic, you don't get sick, you don't get hospitalized, and you don't die. And there's a 95% efficacy for death and severe hospitalization. It's almost a 9,900% efficacy. So looking at the original strain 
uh, from uh, Wuhan, I think that is a fair statement to make. Now, when you bring out the Delta variant and you say, well, now with the vaccine and the Delta variant, there may be some reports that it's not going to pre prevent me 95% from getting the, the, the virus. Whether those reports turn out to be true or whatever, the answer to that is to, you know, we'll talk, have another episode about the booster, is to get the booster. Or when Moderna and Pfizer release a multivalent version of the, of the booster shot, which includes the Delta variant. So the answer to that is not to get it, is to, you know, get it plus get the booster. And when the multivalent version of the vaccine comes out to get that. So it's almost like you've got a leak in the boat and you're anticipating two, three more leaks. So I'm not going to plug the first leak because, you know, there's two more leaks coming. The answer is to plug that leak and then go when those two other leaks open up, plug that. That's the way you keep the boat from sinking. All right. So the next thing I want to talk about is the FDA approval for the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine and how it impacts the legal world. Well, number one, I think there is a large swath of corporate America and government entities uh, that have wanted a mandate COVID vaccines, COVID-19 vaccines for their employees. And I think the resistance has not been their will to do it. It's been the hesitancy to mandate a vaccine that has not gotten full FDA approval. And there was a lot of concern that if they went ahead and mandated all their employees to get the vaccine, that uh, there would be lawsuits from employees and, and unions and different groups saying that you're mandating us to get something that even the government has not approved that only is investigational and is under emergency use authorization. I think the fact that this FDA approval came in gives the legal department some cover now. So for those organizations that have been wanting to mandate it, even the US military is probably gonna do it in September. And it's going to give a lot of organizations the cover they needed justifiably or, or not, whatever you wanna look at. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it's gonna give them the cover to mandate that all employees and certain corporations, companies, entities be vaccinated. And of course, uh, the one industry that's near and dear to my heart is healthcare. And of course, I see that coming too, because healthcare is one of the few industries that has decade-long history of mandating vaccines for all their employees. So this is not creating a menu, it's adding to the menu of things that you need. So currently, if you want to become a volunteer in a hospital, if you want to work in the kitchen in a hospital, if you want to work in a nursing home, if you want to work in a surgery center, and technically if you want to work in a doctor's office, although that's not often enforced, technically if you want to be in healthcare, you need to get a whole host of vaccines and get annual TB skin tests and get annual flu shots, or you can't work there. So that's been going on for decades. So it's going to be no big thing for them to add the COVID-19 vaccine to this. And I think it may have already been added had it not been for the fact that the vaccine has not had not gotten FDA approval. So I think this will certainly give cover to a lot of organizations. And I think the organizations that are going to go first are the ones where they're protecting their clients or patients' health by mandating the employees. Because I think in healthcare, one of the ways that these mandates were approved and there wasn't a lot of blowback 
is not because you know healthcare just has more clout, but the argument was we need to protect the patient. So if you're going to be a nurse and you're going to be taking care of a vulnerable patient, you can't be spreading tuberculosis to them. You can't be giving them the flu because they're in a vulnerable position. So we're going to put the burden on you because you're, we're giving you a job where you're going to come into contact with vulnerable people. So I think the first industries that are going to fall to this COVID-19 vaccine mandate is going to be industries where people are going to be taking care of vulnerable people. Now, the degree of vulnerability <laughs> may may expand and what we consider clients are just vulnerable people. But certainly healthcare should be the first one to fall and it's going to be the easiest one to mandate because they're already mandating it. Now, other industries, you know, I mean, this is going to be a, a discussion. You know, do you want your Uber driver to be vaccinated? Do you want your bus driver to be vaccinated? Do you want your the person serving you food to be vaccinated? So I think those are going to be the gray areas. You know, do you want your police officer vaccinated? And I think society has to make a decision about, you know, certain people who have jobs, who come into contact with the public and the level of protection we'd like to have from them. Just like for, you know, the past 30, 40 years, we've mandated healthcare workers to get all these vaccines, you know, measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, uh, hepatitis B, annual TB, skin test, flu shots. We've mandated that because we made the argument that we're going to protect the vulnerable. And so adding the COVID-19 vaccine, now that it has FDA approval, I would imagine it's going to be an easy one that's going to go first. And then other industries are going to have to decide. But for the people who always think that this mandate is revolutionary, it is not. It's been going on for a long time, certainly in healthcare. It is not a revolutionary concept to mandate employees to get a vaccine. It's been going on for a long time. And there are other industries that require vaccines. You know, certain security guards and police officers need hepatitis B vaccine potentially in case they arrest someone, there's blood, what have you. So there's certain occupational exposure that, you know, are recommended to get vaccines because of the occupation. If you're going to be working in a sanitation department and you're going to become in contact with hepatitis A, it's recommended you get the hepatitis A vaccine. So there's a lot of occupations that vaccines have a long history of being recommended or mandated. So I just see COVID being kind of meshed into the fabric of uh, occupational medicine and which occupations you know, need it for the for the employee safety or for the safety of the person they're going to be coming near. And then also just looking at schools, for example, we've been mandating vaccines for schools forever in all 50 states. There's a whole host of vaccines that all kids need to get, which gets to the bigger point that, again, somehow COVID-19 vaccine is being held to a different bar because we, we're saying, well, that vaccine can't be mandated. Well, obviously, we have a whole host of vaccines that are mandated in schools, healthcare, and other industries. So to the people who say this one vaccine can never be mandated anywhere is holding the COVID-19 vaccine to a different standard, a different bar than we apply to other vaccines, for example. Well, I think the other thing is, you know, people ask why is Moderna and uh, Johnson Johnson haven't been improved yet. I think that's just a matter of gathering data. I know Moderna is aggressively uh, packaging and uh, submittal uh, based on their studies of, of longer period with 40,000 people or so. And Johnson Johnson is actually about to release this data on 
uh, two shots and uh, how that's looking. So that's really coming in the next couple of months. I think what's also coming in the next couple of months, just so you can say you heard it here, is we should be hearing something by October from uh, Moderna and Pfizer about the 6 to 11 age group efficacy. What was interesting uh, is one of the things that came out of the Pfizer FDA announcement, FDA approval, was they were not going to allow off-label use for 11 and 10-year-olds. You know, usually once a vaccine gets FDA approval, physicians at their discretion are able to use it off-label. And by off-label, meaning even if it's not exactly in the age group, for example, that it's a bit approved, the physician can use their own judgment to maybe give it to someone younger, older than the approved group or in a different situation than it was initially approved. But they went out of their way to say they're, they don't want off-label use at this point for less than 12 while they evaluate the data from Pfizer and Moderna looking at the 6 to uh, 11 population. And that should be coming out in October and December I'm hoping we get the data in less than six years old. So that data may be coming out probably more like January, maybe December, but January, based on everything I've seen, that data should be available then. So I would say by Q1, there is a really strong likelihood that the COVID-19 vaccines may be approved for very young children up to uh, any age. So that's coming, I would say, by, by definitely Q1 of next year. I think on some level, this if, if everything goes according to track, uh, I think this vaccine is going to be yeah, just one of the many vaccines that are out there and uh, that we're going to have to take depending on uh, how long our immunity lasts uh, from the vaccine and, and how the virus mutates. And that, that will tell the tale of you know, uh, what we're going to have to do long term. Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about is, you know, what this FDA approval means in terms of the pandemic in general. I think one of the things that I think most of us are starting to realize with the variants and how long the immunity lasts from the original two, and now, you know, we need potentially a booster, is that this is really being converted from a pandemic situation to an endemic virus that we're going to have to live with as a society and how we're going to deal with it in terms of you know societal measures and social distancing masking and booster shots and you know uh, ventilations in buildings and work some people working remotely and all those strategies that we've been talking about may now have to go from short-term strategies and how do we deploy those to long-term strategies if the COVID-19 virus becomes endemic. It's something that we will have to live with. And I think this FDA approval and the studies coming out in children in the next few months is going to be part of that long-term solution. We're going to have to come up with a long-term solution because I think the old concept of developing herd immunity and just having the COVID-19 virus disappear like smallpox may not be possible given the variants that are coming out, given the length of time potentially the vaccine may give you immunity, or even how long your own natural immunity may last after you get infected. In other words, if we ever get to the point where you can get reinfected with COVID, if you've already been infected, or get infected after you've had an older version of the vaccine, that really speaks to an endemic 
virus now. An endemic virus requires different strategies than a, than a virus that we were trying to get under control and eliminate. And I think what the Delta variant has taught us, the odds are shifting every day that we're he heading to a long-term endemics problem that we need to deal with as we've dealt with other viruses that, you know, let I me mean, look at HIV, you know, came out in the 1980s and here we are, you know, 40 years later and we're, we're still dealing with it, addressing it with it. We've had great success, but it's still, it's become part of society. It's become something we've got under control, but it's still present. So I think that's probably, you know, when you look at this FDA approval, that's probably the direction we're going. When you look at the studies in children, all of that is sort of gearing us up for a long-term battle and attempt to control something that's going to be with us for maybe a long time. Okay, so obviously we've seen that there's been reports of a lot of quote-unquote antiviral medicines that people can take that would help treat COVID uh, or lessen its impact. While those studies are ongoing, and I'm not going to sit here and go through every study and say, oh, this is good or bad. But globally, what I want to talk about is that a virus is much different than a bacteria. I think I had another episode, which I will link above, about how what a virus really is. When a virus invades your body, it's not a real organism. Think of it as an envelope with just a strand of RNA or DNA in the envelope. That's all the machinery it has. And that machine, that envelope infects you. It releases the package into your own cells. It hijacks your own cells, and your own cells then create more copies of the virus. Unlike a bacteria, which is a whole organism, it can feed itself. It takes care of itself. It lives by itself. It doesn't need to invade your cells and take over your machinery. So with a bacteria, it's, e it's easy to come up with antibacterial medication. Because it, since it's its own organism, all we have to do is sabotage how it feeds itself, how it gets nutrients, how it attaches to things. Because it's, it's, it, think of it as a living target, and they don't need anyone else to live. They can live all by themselves uh, and replicate without using your body. Viruses are different. They need you. They need to hijack. You know, they're not a ship. They're just airline pilots that jump into the plane and take over the cockpit versus bacteria where they don't have to take over the cockpit. They can just live on the plane. They can live in the cargo area. So when we come up with antibacterial medications, bacterial organisms are easy targets generally, although it took the advent of penicillin, you know, some 80 years ago to figure it out. But since then, we've figured out that we can kill bacteria often by disrupting how it makes its cell wall, how it replicates. So many different places we, where we can attack bacteria. Viruses are different. Viruses have no machinery to attack. And once they get machinery, they're using our machines. So this is why here we are. When did HIV come out? 1980. Okay, how many years later is that? 40 years later? You know, it took that long a good 20, 30 years to come up with antiviral therapy for HIV. The first five or 10 years, we had nothing. Why didn't we have anything? Because it was very hard to figure out where we were going to attack the virus, okay? And look at most of the, the viruses we get. Look at, 
you know, uh, the common cold, look at measles, look at mumps. You know, we have we have vaccines for it, but do we have good antiviral therapy, even herpes? We have moderate antiviral therapy. So antiviral therapies are, by definition, exceedingly hard to develop. Look at the flu. We have marginal antiviral uh, medications, which just make a marginal difference, not a dramatic difference. And they took decades to develop. So one of the reasons that we think it's going to be a while till we identify true antivirals that will make an impact on COVID-19 virus is because of that. It's not going to be that simple. And when you look at antivirals that we've used for HIV, you know, they weren't really off-the-shelf medication that we, oh my gosh, here's something that could impact HIV. They almost have to be designer drugs to get at this virus simply because the virus itself has no machinery to attack. And all we can do is, I mean, again, if you think of a virus as commandeering a cockpit, you know, we have to then attack the, the plane. That's a lot harder than just scraping the bacteria off the, the top of the plane because they're not embedded. I mean, look at HIV. They didn't find something off the shelf. Oh, uh, here's an antifungal cream that will kill HIV that we've, that's been sitting on our shelves for 20, 30 years. Is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? No. Okay, that's all I'm saying. Statistically, here's a virus. Oh, my gosh. Just by happenstance, we happen to be having something. We have something on the shelves that's been sitting here for 40 years that will kill this virus. Yes, maybe. Maybe. Yes, maybe. Yeah, we don't know yet, and still not an excuse not to get the vaccine. Look, it's not, it's not like we're idiots. Like there are these things sitting on the shelf, you know, for forty years, and a new virus comes along. Oh, wow! What great luck! This thing that we had sitting on the shelf works on this new novel vi- virus. Is that is that the way it's going to go down? It's sort of like saying uh, you bought a new car and you want to. It's got a chi- it's got a little chip on the paint. And you're like, gee golly, I happen to be going into my garage. I just happen to have that color by, by some coincidence. I, I There's an old can sitting in, in my garage that's a perfect fit. You know, viruses are more difficult to treat and, and often require tailor-made antivirals, especially for a novel uh, virus. And so, yeah, I, I think you would have to, it's unlikely that we're going to have something on the shelf that could address it. Is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? No. And um, just look at HIV. I mean, that alone should answer it. I mean, there was no more pressing thing in the 80s than to get antivirals because, you know, there wasn't a vaccine and it killed people. So there was a high, high motivation to come up with antivirals. And I'm confident that we're going to get good antiviral therapies for COVID-19 virus. But in the meantime, That's not a reason not to take the vaccine, because even though we don't have necessarily good therapy for measles, mumps, we do have the vaccine. So while we're waiting for the right antivirals to be identified, obviously not getting the disease or fighting off the disease before it really takes hold in you is the way to go for now. Thank you for listening. You can check out my website, jonathanbakhtarimd.com, to sign up for my newsletter. And you can watch this full episode over on my YouTube channel, BakhtariMD, where you can leave questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes. As always, be well. Thank you. 